The Music Business Worldwide podcast is supported by Volley Music, a leading financial management platform for the music industry. Volley enables you to track expenses, approve invoices, and make payments 24-7, 365 days a year. For your free trial, head to volleymusic.com. That's V-O-L-Y music.com. Hello and welcome to the Music Business Worldwide podcast supported by Volley Music. My name is Tim Ingham, the founder of Music Business Worldwide. And on this podcast, I'm going to be asking how big can independent artists get without help from a major record label deal? That's been a fierce source of debate at this point for 20 years or so, ever since the likes of TuneCore launched in the early to mid noughties. These days, though, we have the receipts to answer the question. Take Bruno Major, a fully independent artist and my guest on today's podcast. Major, who releases his music via AWOL and owns his own recordings, has comfortably more than a billion streams on Spotify, with two of his tracks, Nothing and Easily, racking up over a quarter of a billion streams each. Major recently released his latest single ahead of his third studio album, which will be out later this summer. He's also a successful live act with a tour of Asia, Europe and North America recently confirmed and he has a particularly interesting history with the record business. Major started out in the music industry signing a major label deal with Capitol Records which was then owned by EMI in Los Angeles. On this podcast, Bruno Major discusses his experience of being signed to that major record company as a young man, how that experience has helped fuel his career ambitions ever since, and how he keeps himself creatively motivated as an independent artist. Bruno Major, welcome to the Music Business Worldwide podcast. I'd like to capture the story, if we can, of how your professional life in music began. As I understand it, you were a session musician to begin with, and I'd really like to delve into what happened when you signed to a major record company. So if you could take us back there and and explain how things started. I will. Long story short, I was a session musician. Yeah, I originally intended to be a guitar player. I was aspiring to become Stevie Wonder's guitar player or Tom Waits' guitar player, like a legacy artist. But I moved down to London after sort of getting my chops together. And I think being in the city, the energy and just inspired me to start writing. And yeah, I'd never really found my artistic voice as, a, as an instrumentalist. But I quickly realized that the combination of words and music, words being another great passion of mine, was really where the, the magic lay for me. And um, I ended up signing a publishing deal. Originally, I actually intended to become a songwriter. So I, I signed a publishing deal to... Sony at the time and very soon after that I garnered interest from record labels and I did the thing where you become a buzzy artist and everyone tries to sign you and then there's like a bidding war which was fun as a 23 year old. How did you you know in all seriousness as a 23 year old that is fun it is exciting it's also probably very intimidating people are using jargon you don't understand things are getting thrown around that are being I'm getting up possibly obfuscated from you. What was your experience of that and how did you navigate your way through it, if at all? To be honest, I was always quite clear-minded about it. I kind of saw through the the BS pretty quickly. You know, I had meetings where I'd walk into a record label with a guitar and, and they'd be like, oh, look, he's brought a guitar with him. That's cute. 
and I had people saying you should be like this male singer songwriter. And actually, I ended up signing to what was at the time Virgin Records in America, because they were the only record label that just said, "You're great. Here's a check." And I signed to them on the premise that they weren't allowed to come into the studio at all for the entire duration of the album process, which is like pretty unheard of. But I wouldn't let them in. I said, "I don't want you there. I don't want you to have your opinion on my creative process. I don't want you to give me." Any A and Ring whatsoever. I want to go into the al- into the studio. I want to make the entire album at the end. I'm going to give it to you, and they're like, "Great!" <laughs> and then, you know, six months later, I went back to America because I'd recorded it in England. I went back to America with my tail held high and all bright eyed, and delivered this thing. And they were like, "This is rubbish. We're not going to release it." They actually said it's unreleasable. So yeah, that was the end of my tenure with them. Uh, wow. Well, I'll come into what happens to, to that music uh, shortly, um, and we will soon move on to the uh, incredibly successful career you've had so far as an independent artist. But I'm, I'm intrigued from a humor perspective. You know, you, you, you were clearly clear eyed during this process, much more so, it's fair to say, than many uh, young artists would have been during that era. I think we're talking about 2014, 13, if, I, if I'm correct. Um you know, you you signed a, a, a deal that, you know, you, you set parameters within that deal, but still you're a young person in your early 20s. You've chosen a career to be a creative. You've been reasonably successful up to that point. If we look at the grand scheme of, you know, how many people even get chosen to be a session musician who get a publishing deal, you know, you're you're edging towards being in the top 10%, if, if not top 1%. Um, how did it make you feel for someone to say this is, Un, uh, unreleasable. I mean, did, did that have an impact on your, your ego and your confidence or did you kind of think, well, I know it's releasable. I know it's good. Like where, where was your head at at that time? It was brutal, to be honest. I think it's a long way down from there. I'm from a small town, Northampton in the Midlands and success for me growing up was becoming a professional musician of any kind like I would have been over the moon to have become a professional tutor or lecturer or somebody who played like gigs at weddings and whatever it was I was like my dream was to just make a living making music but then when you get offered a a record deal and Virgin Records fly you over to LA to put you up in a five-star hotel and like suddenly you're working with all these like huge I was working with all my heroes on this album and of course, I told everyone and my parents told all their friends and they're like, oh, Bruno signed a big record deal. And he's, you know, like, oh, you're going to be famous and all of this stuff. And I think it's interesting because that's part of the the deceit, as in my eyes, of what a record deal is. When I'm, I feel like I'm getting on a tangent here, but like if you break it down to its, what it is at its core, it's a really expensive bank loan. But it's been dressed up in very glamorous way. So that a record deal is like a rite of passage for a rock star. And it's what you hear in the autobiography of like the guys who are in Motley Crue. It's like they signed a deal and they bought a car and then whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's like in, in X Factor, there's the guy behind the counter who has all the power and the small people go on the big TV show and they may wave their magic wands. And the next thing, you're Harry Styles or you're whatever it is. And like that culture has created this like this kind of terrifying pitfall for people who get signed and don't don't become successful with that record deal because everyone knows when you get dropped and it was so brutal for me 
to then like come back home and like, you know, I had my record advance, but I spent it all. So I didn't have any money and I, I didn't have a career and I, I didn't have a fan base at that point. So there was a period of time where I, I didn't know what I was going to do, to be honest. And, and obviously my confidence had been really badly knocked. And this is not a woe is me story because this happens to 90% of people who do sign record deals. And it's a very common thread. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'd say, and we, let's move on to um, what happened afterwards, because that's the good bit. But the only thing I'd say is it's an interesting quirk of timing because that time period for the record industry, I'm not saying that bad deals don't still get done or indeed artists don't get stifled. Prime example in the pop charts right now, who may have liberated oneself from a situation where they felt they were getting creatively stifled in a major record company. But interestingly, I would say that artists have more power today and arguably there's more understanding on the record company part that actually there is no such thing as unreleasable or unlistenable if anything they want as much music as possible many of them as a strategy so it's it's just an interesting moment in time the reason i'm not giving any deniability to the majors here i'm just trying to paint the contextual picture i totally agree i mean i consider myself so fortunate because when all this happened it was 2000 as you said 2013 2014 so it was right on the cusp of the transitional period from the old way of doing things which was and it was very functional, the way of doing things. You sign a record deal, they pay for your album, they put it on the radio, they pay for marketing and touring, and as a result, they take a portion of your income, and, and that's how it worked. But now it doesn't work like that anymore, and I think the issue that we should probably discuss is why is the system still set up for an, an archaic... The record deal system is still set to serve an archaic system which doesn't exist anymore, basically. Brilliant. Well, I know you're a fan of circular discussions if you like circular ideas so we'll come back to that at the end because that brings us right up to date but you've left the label yeah tail between your legs to a want of a better phrase and you know when do you start making music again when do you start believing oh maybe i can fashion a small fan base maybe i can start to earn a living out of this again well i i basically had this moment i remember it really clearly i was i was just like on my sofa um in my pants and (laughs) I was like, I had a huge hangover and that was not an uncommon occurrence at that period of time in my life. And I was just thinking, what do I do here? Because this feels like one of those moments. So I decided I I had a very small amount of money left over from my record advance. I used it to buy a laptop and I decided that I would learn how to use Logic to make my own records. Because I'd signed my deal off the back of iPhone voice notes that I just put up on SoundCloud So I just went on YouTube and started watching videos and decided that I would learn how to produce. I proceeded to spend 18 months making some really bad electronic music. Imagine Bonobo, but he's had too many sleeping pills or something like that. It was really, really, that was my learning process, I guess. And I was writing songs for other people. I ended up doing a session for an artist called Liv Dawson. And we wrote a song called Tapestry, which ended up being her first single. And she was being managed by Method. Jack and Sam at Method and they loved the song and they signed me. I just got out my publishing deal with Sony. So they then signed me to Method as a writer with the intention of putting me in with other people and writing songs for them. And then that same session, the producer was Finley Robson, who's Pharaoh. And I had obviously got like this, I'd got probably got like 500 songs that had never been released. And I just thought, I know I'm a songwriter and I'm dedicated to my career being a songwriter at this point. I'd kind of given up on the artist thing completely. And, but I just thought, why not just make, like, I need to make these songs just for me. So I decided with Finn, because I love the way that he worked and we decided just to start making some songs and put them out on the internet. 
And yes, Sam, my manager, encouraged me to put it all out independently. And yeah, that was the kind of the initial beginnings of my artist career. I just want to, before we move on, before things really pick up, how did you get over? I'm coming from this as a perspective of some, uh, there may be musicians listening who have been dropped or going through a, a difficult reality check, if you like, for, for certain elements of their career. Like, how did you find the inner strength to say, you know what, I'm going to learn to produce. I'm going to get a laptop. I'm going to start again. Like, where did you find that from? How, what was that process like? I mean, this is a, it's such an old cliche, isn't it? But people always say, if you want to be in the music industry, you've got to have a thick skin. And I definitely feel like I have a thick skin. I refuse to live in a universe where I'm not the version of myself that I want to be. And, you know, obviously everyone's got different levels of opportunity and privilege. And I don't take that for granted. But um, I definitely have like a, it's more like an abject fear of failure than a will to succeed. But yeah, I definitely was, there is no way that I'm going to live in a universe where I'm sat on the sofa in five years, still hung over and still got no career. You know what I mean? Well, I met you and interviewed you shortly after your first album, A Song for Every Moon. I got down here, that was 2017, which seems a long time ago now. But, you know, what was the process of releasing that? And did it become, it's strange to use the word hit, we can come back to that as well, but it is a hit. It has spawned songs with hundreds of millions of streams. What was the release process like and when did you first start to realise, oh my, this is actually a success, that I am considering this a success? Well, we put the first, so we decided to do this thing. I had a sort of psychedelic experience, shall we say, in Los Angeles, where I kind of realised that everything revolves around everything else. And you've got like electrons revolving around neutrons and planets revolving around suns and sun revolving around black holes. And and it's everything's just in like sequencing. And it was basically just decided that I needed to be in sequence with the universe. So I decided to do this concept album where I would release, write and release a song every month for a whole year, which feels like a completely mental thing to do now. But I was like, I'm going to literally spend three weeks recording a song and then at the end of that, I'm going to put it on the internet and then I'm going to do it again every month for one year. And I, the first two songs that we did, absolutely nothing happened. And I was still over the moon because I was releasing music and I had like a blog did a review of my song somewhere on the internet. I was like, wow, this is so cool. And I didn't care if anyone listened to it because I, as I said, I'd kind of given up on my artist dreams, I guess. I was just doing it as a personal catharsis and because I genuinely thought that the songs were good and that, that they deserved to just exist in some format somewhere. But yeah, when we did the third one, it was a song called Easily. And I actually spent that month, the first two weeks, working on a completely different song and then realised it was crap. So I canned it and then Finn and I literally recorded Easily in three days. And then I flew to New York uh, for my mum's birthday. And then... I forgot about it. A couple of days later, I had a message from Sam. It was like, holy shit, Easily's done like 100,000 streams in two days or something. It was a really clear cut moment where we started to gain traction. I do remember this. I'm trying to remember what period this is because I, I, now I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking it was 2015 or 16 that I actually interviewed you for the first time and this was happening. So I'm trying to piece together the timeline for my own, for my own memory. What was the timeline? It was November 2016, I believe. So 
When did you, let's talk finances generally, when did you start to realize you could make a living from being an independent musician? And also, when did you start to get financially comfortable with being an independent musician, thinking, actually, this doesn't have to be a struggle every day anymore. This is actually going all right. What was that process? I have to give credit to my manager, Sam Bailey here, because when we started this project, he was adamant that we should do it ourselves. And I had no money at all. So he lent me a sort of like basically a few grand of his own personal money to put together like a basic release plan. And he said that we should do it independently because he believed that we could make money if we released it ourselves through AWOL. My response, honestly, initially was really that's going to work. But he was sure that it was the right way to go. And to his credit, it worked. So, yeah, I take off my hat to Sam for that one. I've got two avenues to go down. So I'm going to go down the first one, which is like to try and get some pearls of wisdom for people who may be in that situation now. Other than your music being great, which it is, I'm not bashful in saying so, I'm not insincere in saying so. It's just, it's, I think everybody knows that. But what other factors do you think maybe have been instrumental in getting you to the stage that you've got to in terms of your fan base and your popularity? And let's be frank, in terms of streaming, a sort of uh, sustainable income. I mean, I don't want to come across as somebody who bashes major labels because I think that that system is fantastic when it works. And there are artists like, I'm not going to name a name, but let's say that you're a huge pop star and you have people that, write your songs for you and you have huge amounts of like other parts of your careers like you're doing fashion and you're doing magazine covers and you're doing events and you're doing interviews and everything that like being one of those pop stars entails like if you've got a huge team and you need a huge machine and you need huge budget like you kind of need to be part of the machine I think in order to do what I've done and be part of to do it independently you have to be a specific type of person I do a lot myself, creatively speaking, like everything is written. I mean, I co-write, but I write all of the songs myself. I produce it all myself with Pharaoh, but I'm like, I'm in the room on the laptop. I play every instrument on those records. I mix the whole thing myself. Mastering, I'm in the room and I master it with Matt Colton at Metropolis. And like, I have a completely like Caesarean dictatorship over my creative process and I don't think everyone wants to do that. And I'm not saying that that means that I'm better or worse than anyone else, but that's the way that I do it. And I think that because of that, I don't need a team of A&Rs or creative directors because I have such a specific and very clear idea of my vision. And I think in order to do what I've done and do it independently, like you probably do need to have that kind of ability and drive and determination because there's no one telling you to get up in the morning and do it. Like you have to want to do it yourself. That's the way I want it to be because I can't imagine anything worse than an A&R coming into my studio and telling me to turn up the snare. No way, dude. <laughs> well, well the, the thing is, there are lots of artists, okay? I understand that from your personal perspective that like, you know, waking up and having 100,000 streams and I realized at the time that was a bigger deal than it would be now because the audience of streaming is, is X amount bigger. But they've decided to release themselves who are, have autonomy over their own creative direction and career and have a clear idea of who they want to be and get the hundred thousand streams in a couple of days. But it's very rare from that group of artists for somebody to have forged a meaningful relationship with a fan base 
that is of a size that makes them a very meaningful artist in commercial sense, popularity sense, however we want to put it. And so I, I guess I'm really interested in like, how did you go from the guy getting heat, you know, as an independent artist and seeing the streaming numbers tick up to actually having a fan base with whom you communicate, you foster and you grow? How did that happen? I think that's two folds, three folds, actually. One is exceptional management. Sam Bailey, who is my manager and I, we don't have like a normal working partnership. It's We're very much business partners. We make all the decisions ourselves and we both work hard, like very, very hard. Sam, like we have a rule where I can't bother him on Sunday, but other than that, like anything goes, you know? And the second part of it is, I think like there's a depth to my music probably because of where I come from being a jazz musician and then like, I've written so many songs now and I'm so steeped in the history of like songwriting. So I love Randy Newman. I love Billy Joel. I love Joni Mitchell. I love Carol King. These are my heroes. And when my music first came out, because it, it was dressed in like R&B and electronic beats. So I got put on like the alternate R&B list and the Sunday soul list. And it was like easily came out and people thought I was, oh, here's another R&B guy. But I think beneath the aesthetics of it is a really solid basis of like meaningful songs and over time that is ultimately what people have gravitated towards it's like they may have come for the like the nice sounding beats of easily but they stayed for the lyrics on places we won't walk and i think that's so important because songs are timeless in 20 years time the music that's on the lo-fi jazz playlist will be dated but a great song will always be a great song. And I, I really firmly believe that that's what has created like the core of my fan base and why they love that, why the music actually really means something to them. The third point is we toured our asses off. When it first came out, we went everywhere. Like I went to anywhere that we, Sam came up with this formula where basically if we had a certain amount of Spotify streams in a city, because you can see on your Ferratis page on Spotify, once we'd reach a threshold, that meant we could sell X amount of tickets. And as soon as we got there, we went, even if it meant it was just me and an acoustic guitar. And we did like, you know, we drove around the out, we did 3,109 miles in a splitter van around America and we lost our minds. And we played to three people in Detroit with a sound system that didn't work. But the point is we went there and people like that and they appreciate that. And you meet them and you shake their hand and you listen to the story of, why the song means something to them and that's what made it real and i think that graft played a big part in creating like a solid fan base yeah well it was like what my interruption there was actually going to be to say the whole music industry these days major all the way down to independent scratches their head a little at how to turn a popular song or a popular set of tracks into a relationship with an audience and you know that they could draw a picture of you basically is is the big challenge it's like how do you make it so that the artist is someone in their minds and i think ultimately the answer there other than great management and great music was touring by the sounds of things looking at people in the whites of their eyes and, and having conversations about it is, would that be a fair summation absolutely i always analogize it with like a painter making a painting that you could make the most beautiful painting in the world, but until you hang it in a gallery and it's been observed, it's not a piece of art. And I feel the same way about a song. It's all very well putting it on the internet and then looking at numbers and I've saying I've had this many streams, but until you go to Jakarta and you meet somebody who had that song played at their grandmother's funeral and they share a moment with you and you hug them, like that's real human connection. And if you do that over and over again, all over the world, 
there's really no substitute for that. It's, it's just so easy to get addicted to the, the binary code and the, the numbers and the streams and the likes. And the. I feel like what you're talking about is great advice for an artist who may be stuck in that and maybe has some, wish I could find another phrase, but frankly has some social anxiety about playing live or hasn't had the immediate success playing live as they've seen on the internet. It's like the word you used was graft. I think that comes from a determination, which maybe we could trace to the beginning of your career indeed, but it comes from somewhere, you know, the, the fact that it's like, let's get out there and show people how good this is. Well, absolutely. I mean, I spent the first, four, after I left college, I spent the first four years of my career playing at weddings and drive up to Hull and play covers for 50 quid. And I was happy as Larry and I was so proud to be making a living like that. It means that when I go to New York and I play for 3,000 people now, it's mind-blowing. And it's something that I will never take for granted because of the origins of like being a working musician, you know? So I wanted to bring us up to the 2020 album, To Let A Good Thing Die, another big success. And my question here, that period of your career, before we bring it right up to date, is really what keeps you motivated to keep succeeding? Is it purely an artistic itch or is there something you want to prove? You know, why didn't you get lazy basically after being successful as an independent, so successful as an independent musician? What keeps you hungry and keeps you energized? I think primarily it is an artistic drive. I very much feel that writing songs is my purpose and I've really eschewed, I've eschewed everything else in my life, sometimes to my own detriment, to pursue my dream. And I don't know, I feel that I have, I can't say this without sounding like an egotist, but I feel that I have a gift with my songwriting and I feel that not to cherish it and nurture it. And like when Tom Hanks makes that tiny little fire on the desert island in whatever that film is, and he's like really trying to start the fire and then he like gets a little like spark and then he's like blowing on it and trying to make it into something. It's like, if you don't respect that gift, it's like blasphemous because that it's such a special thing. And I feel like I'm just so grateful to have the ability to do what I do. And I'm even more grateful to have the ability to do it every day. So it would be disrespectful not to work as hard as I can. That's how I feel about it. That was a great answer. And so now I do want to bring us up to date. Before we began this conversation, this is before, I, as I said, I'd make things circular and we talk, I'm sure you're getting offers on the table and what have you. And I want to talk about that. But before we began this conversation, you were talking to me about how you've just been through an 18-month process of writing, recording, perfecting what will be the new album, which I guess will come out around the same time that this is made public. And I'm interested, the main thing I'm interested in is like, there are artists in different situations, not necessarily with majors or with indies or whatever, but different situations who, for starters, don't treat albums that way. It's like, let's put up as much music as frequently as possible and see what sticks is one release strategy that we're seeing quite a lot. Do you understand that that's quite rare, having the appetite and the patience to do it, but also having worked your career to the point that you can give yourself the liberty to do it? Yeah, I mean... It comes down to what you want, really. Um, when Sam and I started this project, we made a manifesto. And it, the first thing we wanted to achieve was making great art. And the secondary thing was to monetize that as much as we could. Because I'm a businessman. Sam's a businessman. I like making money. And that was really it. I don't care about being a massive artist and people saying my name when I'm in Tesco's and being on magazine covers and winning statues at award ceremonies like that really does not mean anything to me the most important thing is that i make 
something that when I finish my career, I can look back on and be like, wow, I, I really made that. And I think you can hear that in my music as well. It's not pertaining or aspiring to be anything on a superficial level. It's just, it's trying to be honest and it's trying to be as excellent as it can be. So in that sense, I have no wish to put out music for the sake of, of worrying that I'm going to become irrelevant in inverted commas because I don't care. One of my great heroes is D'Angelo. And I think he waited 10 years between his second album and his third album. And, you know, people were still waiting for it because it's D'Angelo and they're there for the music. And I think more and more as the, the internet has reduced our and continues to reduce our attention span. So we had Facebook, then we had Instagram. Now we've got TikTok and it's like everything's getting shorter and shorter and shorter to the point where, you know, if you don't post on Instagram for a week, you won't be on the feed and you won't get any likes. And to get the boost of dopamine, you have to put up something and then you get your back in the memory of the internet. But, you know, I, I don't really want to play that game. And if it means that less people will listen to my music, then so be it. I have a sneaking suspicion that it won't. And actually, you're the converse to much of the sort of uh, accepted wisdom of how to release records and how to maintain fan bases in 2023. But that's who you are. Well, they get really angry, man. I, I get... I get so many angry messages every day. It's like, where is the album? <laughs> but it's like, if I released it now, you wouldn't like it. So you just kind of have to wait. Well, it works for Rihanna from the best. So I do want to, in all seriousness, talk about the fact that, you know, you are now an established artist. I talked before about the hundreds of millions of streams. That's not a one-off, by the way. People can go and look at those numbers if they if they didn't know previously or if they're not fans of yours. You must be getting offers. I'm not going to dig into who's offering what, but you must be getting offers fairly regularly from the worlds of the major record companies. And by major record companies, I'll be specific. I mean record labels. So I believe you're still with AWOL. We don't have to get into the nuts and bolts. AWOL now part of Sony, but still effectively the same model it always was. Um, why... Don't you take the checks, Bruno, because they must be sizable. There must be promises galore and no one will ever tell you your music isn't releasable or whatever the phrase was ever again. So why do you stick with this model that you know, which frankly may be harder work? Why do you stick with that and not take the checks? Because it's a deceit that going back to what I was saying about X Factor, it's like Simon Cowell gives you a million dollar record contract inverted commas and makes you famous and that's how people think that it works but the reality is they take if i've always viewed my music as an asset so i don't see it any differently as if i had invented the mug and i went on dragon's den and i said to theopathetus and duncan bannatine said guys i've invented the mug i think in five years everyone's going to be drinking their cups of tea out of this and i need a hundred grand to expand my business and in exchange i'm going to give you five percent of my business equity and then theo and duncan will go away and they'll be like all right we'll give you the hundred grand but we want 15 percent of your the equity on your business and then they'd be like oh that's too much that's too much and um, they'd go to the back of the room and they'd discuss it with their business partners in music the standard amount of equity that you give to a record label is 80%. They take 80% of your business ad infinitum forever in exchange for a hundred grand loan or sometimes less, 50, 25 grand. You get kids giving away the rights to their music for their lifetime for a 25 grand loan and the promise that they might get marketing opportunities or they might be able to go on the radio. But like I've now got a functioning asset that is creating capital on a daily basis. Why would I now go and give away 80% of my income to a record label. 
because even if they offered me millions and millions of pounds, which might well happen, that millions of pounds is going to cost me 10, 20 times more money. Do you know what I mean in the long term? So it, all it is is a loan. And I could go to the bank and get the same money for a lot less and probably get the same amount of marketing opportunities. Because from my personal experience, record labels do very little for the majority of people they sign. So that's basically it. It's a question of forgetting the narrative and the idea of what a record label is and treating it as what it really is, which is just a loan. That is the answer to that question. Unequivocally. Let's talk about the new album. I don't know anything about it. Uh, no one seems to know much about it. So tell us what it's all about. I mean, I don't know if there's a concept this time or if it's written about anything in particular or anything has been inspiring it, but also what's your ambitions for it? What do you want to achieve in the world? I feel very much that this album is the summation of my efforts and growth as an artist over, over my lifetime. I, I feel like album one and album two were, were reaching for something and I, I'm proud of them, but they never quite got there. And this album has, and I don't know, I'm just incredibly proud of it. I feel like it's probably, probably the best thing I'll ever do. And I'd be happy to be judged on it forever. But, um, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier, I, I don't necessarily have any kind of like palpable ideas of what success means. I don't necessarily want, need to be on any particular TV show or whatever. I just trust that. I trust that it will find its home, whatever that shall be. Well, I'll be surprised if you're wrong. And I'll also think you will get invites onto those TV shows because there's a clear trajectory in your career. And I think other than the music being inspiring itself, the story is pretty inspiring of uh, you taking that knockback, the knockback of all knockbacks, which could have really derailed your career had you let it rule your life. And to see everything that's come since, and I'm sure will happen in the future, it's a stunning story. So Bruno Major, thank you very much for joining us on the Music Business Worldwide podcast. Thank you very much for your time, Tim. Appreciate it. 